0: Last week, Bill began our sermon series for the fall about stewardship with a sermon entitled, The Stewardship for the Mind. If you were not here, I highly recommend getting a copy or watching it on YouTube. In this fall sermon series of eight sermons, we will be examining the various ways in which God is calling us to be stewards of the life and the ways in which we've been entrusted to live in this world. You see, too often the concept of stewardship is just so narrowly thought of as money or treasure, and when we think about it in such narrow terms, we we lose the impact of understanding that we are also to be good stewards of our body and creation and time and the community and even our death. The sermon for today is entitled The Stewardship of Our Work. God has asked us to work from the very beginning It was the very beginning that we were to be co-creators of life with God. Our individual gifts are given to us and so that we can flourish and that God's reality can flourish through us. So we are co-creators with God. And scripture contains quite a repository of teachings and work ethics. The Old Testament's legal codes dictate how to treat employees and slaves, what to do for reparations for livestock if they're injured by somebody because that's the way you actually worked. There are all sorts of standards for weights and measures, what to do if you've been cheated, and mm, what might happen if you're the one doing the swindling. There are prescriptions for why you need to rest. All of God is in your work, so therefore you take the first fruits of your labor as an offering in gratitude to God for what you have. The New Testament is filled with parables about masters and servants and tenants and vineyards. And we could brush those off in our 21st century sophistication as thinking that these are just charming verses. But the passage that we're going to read today from the prophet Isaiah is extremely poignant for the circumstances in which we find ourselves today. Isaiah speaks to the people during the 6th century before the common era who were living in foreign lands as exiles. The circles of their life that had always been joined around family and the tribe and the temple were destroyed when the temple was destroyed. So though they were learning to live in a foreign land. They were influenced by worshipers of pagan gods. There were people rushing in to fill the void with corrupting ideas. And others just made their own meaning because they had lost sight of who they were and whose they were. Some maintained that God was not present, God wasn't interested in seeing or hearing what transpired in their lives. So before I read what Isaiah says to this congregation of people, please join me in prayer. God, you have spoken to us through creation and your prophets since the beginning. Silence in us any voice but yours and breathe your spirit into these holy words again, that we can hear your call for our lives and be startled by your truth. Direct our meditation and bring us to be faithful disciples of your Son, who is our Savior. Amen. I'll be reading selected verses from Isaiah chapter 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in a scale, and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has instructed him? Who taught him knowledge, and who showed him the way of understanding? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and all its inhabitants are just like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in. It is he who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. To whom then will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see he is great in strength and mighty in power. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. God does not faint, God does not grow weary. God's understanding is unsearchable. God gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and they shall not faint. Here ends our reading. When I meet someone for the first time and they find out that before I became a minister, I had more than 20 years in a corporate consulting career, I know the first question they're going to ask. How did that happen? And it's never a quick answer, for me anyway. It was more than 10 years, more than 10 years, as I look back on the first time I started really thinking about it before I became a minister. And it's a very circuitous winding path with only glimmers of light of when God was finally breaking through to call me to something new. But here's one memory of a very important turning point. At one time, I was leading a consulting practice for a firm in Boston that was dedicated to improving a retail bank's ability to attract and retain customers. At that time, banks would dangle free checking and no-fee ATMs and even pay $100 bonuses to entice new customers, only to find out that months later they'd walk out the back door or never really use the account and then later close it. More than 50% of these new customers left. Now the profitability for the bank didn't rest on opening the new account, it was retaining the customers and cultivating over a lifetime with these customers, even the first three to five years, some payments behaviors and some behaviors that would buy new products and services. That's the way profitability was gained. In our consulting practice, we had intellectual capital and customer and financial models and we could demonstrate how more customers would come into the bank with new work processes and workflows and As I say all those things, I know I sound like a consultant again. We were pitching a deal to one of the largest banks in the country, and our proposed project had a very significant profitability projected. We had spent a lot of time in this bank. I knew the executives, I knew people on the front line, we had their data, we had done all sorts of models of what could happen, And it all boiled down to, if we could change the behaviors of 3% of their customers, it was significant profitability. Now, 3% doesn't sound like much. But in reality, it takes a Herculean effort to change behaviors first inside the bank with the employees so that they and then can change the behaviors of customers. But we proved it's possible. And the cumulative impact was indeed quite profitable. There was nothing glamorous about this. It was just solid, customer-focused, good banking. It was a great project. It was a great pitch. We won the project, and I was delighted. As I was sitting on the plane going back to O'Hare, all I could think of was, gosh, what if? What if instead we were pitching a project to inspire their employees to be 3% more faithful to God? And that was a light bulb that went off for me. And when I was thinking of 3% more faithful to God, I'm not, I'm not in any way suggesting that they were going to evangelize or proselytize. I'm the first one to get offended when someone wants to bring me to the altar for a conversion or shove his or her religion in my face. That's, that's not what I'm implying. But what I was thinking of is imagine the lasting benefits far beyond any income statement, but the benefits to the family and to a community if in fact the people in the bank believed and behaved as though they knew that God cares about their work as accountants and tellers and loan officers. Think about what it would mean for them if they knew that God really cares about what they do every day and that God loves them Think about what might happen if just 3% more of the time they were following Jesus' commands because they matter in the workplace. Now see, becoming more faithful doesn't make you less competitive. In fact, we have all kinds of examples of fabulous capitalists who are also great Christians. To fully embody your faith makes you so much stronger. So play along with some what-ifs. What if, on average, we were 3% more honest in employee reviews and we really talked to the other person? Author and coach to Silicon Valley executives Kim Scott claims that the strongest leaders, those who inspire loyalty and motivate employees, are those who are willing to be what she calls radically candid. She wrote a book, I highly recommend it, by the name of Radical Candor. Radical candor is telling it like it is with poor performance and praising specific talents that you've observed that you know can be made better. Radical candor articulates harsh truths and it is welcomed by an employee when he or she knows that you fundamentally care about them as a person. If you really know someone and care about them, you can speak the truth to them, and it's welcome. Performance rises when those who care for your success hold the bar and want you to get there. Consider what it would be like if we were just 3% more willing to see the other person not as just a production unit, but as someone with untapped creative potential in his or her field. It asks us, do we really see the other person? And what if we held ourselves and others accountable to ethics we know are indicative of prudent practices, even if it's never prescribed in a policy? We know how to do the right thing. We don't need someone to tell us. I'm not talking about becoming a whistleblower, but rather braving the small acts so that the potential for the big and destructive things just plain old don't happen. Working in places with a high moral standard means that you step away from the slippery slopes. What if we were 3% more invested in a colleague's project, and she knows that we really have her back? What if 3% more often we wondered how Jesus would support us or chastise us for our behavior at work? It seems as though employees are expected to check their faith at the door when entering a commercial enterprise. Economist Milton Friedman's iconic uh, 1970 New York Times article is often cited for having initiated and defending this practice. According to Milton Friedman, business leaders have, I quote, one and only one responsibility, which is to increase profits, and they are never to let their perceived quote, social responsibilities infringe on any of their decisions. It took hold. Over decades, shareholder value has been prioritized over everything else, creating value for our country, for my portfolio, and I imagine yours as well. There's good reasons to look after shareholder value. In accord, though, research research confirms that corporations have discouraged the presence of faith in the workplace. Instead, organizations are marvels at uniting us all around mission and vision statements and common goals. We go into work and we know exactly what we're supposed to do and for whom we are working and how we're supposed to behave and believe. And organizations are also very good at discouraging anything that might be uncomfortable or cause dissent. In the process, we have learned to separate our very best selves our faith, from where we invest the bulk of our days and decades of our lives. At the same time, people were asked to check their faith at the door before going to work. Research confirms that Christians also feel as though their professional concerns are outside of the interests of the church. More than a majority of clergy admits to sidestepping conversations about work with members, sensing their own blind spots about what actually goes on in the workplace. So here's where we've gotten ourselves: Don't bring your faith to work. I'm checking my faith at the door and my church doesn't even seem to care about it. This trifecta has served in only isolating us further and further from God and one another sometimes. It's no wonder church attendance has declined since what we do as a faith community might not seem relevant to the 40 to 60 hours a week that you're toiling in your lives. As I sat on that airplane coming home, I realized that the people I saw were often highly educated, professional, and articulate individuals who were starved for meaning It became for me a new understanding of what we've always referred to in the church as the lost, the least, and the lonely. They need our love and care just as much. I know because I was one of them as well. As a people, we are able to make meaning, and this is where the caution signs are shouting even more loudly. Highly motivated, educated, and talented people are turning more and more to work. In the vacuum of faith work is becoming the center of our identity and purpose at a time when we have achieved as a nation the highest productivity with automation it's not the laborer who works more you might not be surprised but those who are clocking the most hours are the skilled professionals and those with the longest average work week and the fewest leisure hours are wealthy, married men who serve as executives. I'm talking to us. Now, it's not entirely money that drives such devotion to work, far from it. At work, executives report feeling satisfied and in control, and they have found a passion to explore, and the creativity absolutely can be exhilarating, no doubt. But just as other trends that start at the top of an organization, this ethos of working longer hours to create a sense of fulfillment is bleeding over into other genders and age groups. And as teens are beginning to run the gauntlet to college, they report 90% of the time that it is, quote, extremely important, 95% of the time, to have a career or job that they would enjoy. Professional ambitions are higher than family or kindness. And the downside of not finding a, quote, vocational soulmate can mean that your life might just be wasted. No wonder anxiety is on the rise. Becoming so single-minded for work and building an individual brand is akin to making our careers into idols. As an aside, as I was writing the sermon, I noticed a comic strip that I had tacked to the bulletin board above my desk at home. There's, um, in the Washington Journal, on the op-ed page in the lower right-hand corner, there's always a one-frame comic there entitled Pepper, Dot, 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 and Salt. Um, It's a one-frame comic that names the affairs of the day. And this particular one that I had put up there months ago, didn't know about it uh, resonating in this sermon, but I'd put it up there months ago because God is standing in the heavenly clouds with Saint Peter right next to him and God's looking down at all of what's going on and says, from the looks of things, it looks like I shouldn't have rested on that seventh day. (laughs) So is the answer to our problems, is the answer to our problems solved by working longer hours rather than becoming good stewards of what God has given to us. And this is where Isaiah's prophecy resonates so loudly. He was disruptive in the sixth century before Christ lived, and he is disruptive now because it's uncomfortable to think of where we've gotten ourselves. Because in all our machinations, we seem to be just as exiled from God as those displaced in the, after the, the temple, Fell. They were vulnerable to other ideas, and so are we. It might not be the pagan god Marduk, but this notion of worshiping a career is just as toxic. Isaiah asks, Who weighed the mountains and scales? Reminding us the things we build pale in comparison to God's craft. Who taught God knowledge and who gave God a spirit? As the Israelites heard such questions, they had no response, for they knew that God is the creative genius. So before we hang our future on someone else's star or believe we can craft it all by ourselves, let's remember God, remember God's commands, and remember God is the one who gave us the creative talent, so be a co-creator with God. Finally, Isaiah questions, Do you understand God does not grow faint or weary? And it's Isaiah who answers, the one who created us is the one in this life who will lift lift us up with the wings of eagles. The cornerstone of Isaiah's message is to restore a single-minded trust in God. God chases after us when we are in exile with prophets, God has always kept God's promised covenant, even when we turn away. And God continues to pursue us in Jesus and the church. So let me close with some of the hopeful research that surfaced. For the first time in 2016, scholarly research was conducted about faith in the workplace. That alone is pretty poignant that it wasn't until 2016 that faith and work were actually studied by scholars in the workplace. Prior to that, it was acceptable to study spirituality, but even faith and venturing into things of how you order your lives through a religion was something you just didn't ask. But they have. Among a number of findings, scholars cited that Christians say they want to use their unique talents for work in ways that bring honor and glory to God. We want to do what God has called us to do in work. We have passions around it that came from God. So that's the glimmer of light that still burns within us. Engineers flourish when exercising their minds to solve problems, they do that with God. Scientists are creative in exploring the edges of the known world when they are thinking and working with God. Nurses are the actual hands of God in healing. We know that some people are very gifted as leaders. It wasn't something that they invented their own. And we want insurance adjusters and administrators to thrive with critical thinking and who are willing to dissolve bureaucracies and be our friend. Prayers are answered by teachers who have patience with children and remind them that they are loved and flights are bearable when the gate agent understands you're just trying to get home after a long week on the road, and empathy is the bomb that soothes when your flight's been canceled. The way to a rewarding career is to do what gives you life, and that life is a talent given from God. So we start with humility towards God, giving thanks for our talents and our passions, knowing that God is the foundation upon which we stand, And God is the glory to which we work and live. May it be so for you, my friends. Amen.